Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 22nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a recently signed law secures more dignified practices for women in Mississippi's prisons. Then a university professor responds to recent statements by the Secretary of State regarding college students' voting proclivities and the education they receive. Plus, in our book club, a New York Times bestselling author explores what it means to be alive in life's edge. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A new law will soon take effect that bans pregnant women who are incarcerated from being shackled and allows their newborn to be with them for 72 hours. The provisions are a part of the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act. Republican Representative Nick Bain of Corinth chairs the Judiciary B Committee and advocated for the legislation. He tells our Desiree Frazier the new law is a reflection of Commissioner Burl Kane's effort to change attitudes within the prison system. I think it was important to, you know, we have some issues with uh, in our corrections department um, with treatment of inmates. Um, and I think this goes along the lines of the Commissioner Kane's whole uh, um, mindset about showing compassion, about uh, giving people the dignity and integrity that they deserve. Uh, so I think it, it's just a, a a new mindset for the way that we do things or the way that we want to do things. Your thought on the governor signing the bill, albeit um, quietly, but he signed it. No, I'm happy that he did. Uh, You know, I don't care if he did it quietly or loudly as long as it was signed. Do you think that this is really going to have an impact? I I hope so. I think it already has. I mean, I can't tell you how many interviews that I've done because of this, Uh, just the positive impact that it has for Mississippi is good but for me it goes a step further in being a, a pro-life bill desiree i think that um you know we're, we're, we're creating a a uh, environment that makes pregnant women uh in, in jail gives them 
the resources they need to have a healthy and safe pregnancy, uh, providing their children once uh, they're born or even the children that are here now an opportunity to have a relationship with their mother. And I think this hopefully will pay dividends in the future. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trend going around the country uh, doing this type of bill. So, yeah, I think it will have a, a large impact on Mississippi. More than 1,450 women are currently housed in Mississippi prisons, according to the State Department of Corrections. Pauline Rogers with the REACH Foundation says the new law is a big step forward. She says when she was incarcerated more than 30 years ago, women had to rely on one another. Oh, it's long overdue. It's something that should have occurred years ago. Uh, Having been incarcerated, I witnessed, you know, we were the caretaker. We were the nurse, other inmates, when I say. Uh, we, other prisoners were the nurses and doctors to women that were pregnant. I mean, you just learned to take care of each other. And pregnant women were no different. And so it is a huge piece of legislation that should have already taken place because every woman wants to be treated humanely and with dignity and respect. And being shackled while you're pregnant is not humane. And it doesn't give you any dignity and respect. And you certainly are not a threat to security when you're in that position of delivery. How long ago was it that you were incarcerated? Over 30 years ago that I was incarcerated. And when you think back to that time and helping other women, what was the biggest challenge in your mind? The biggest challenge was helplessness. You, you, you knew something needed to be done, but you were in the same state as, as your peers, but you were helpless with doing anything while incarcerated. But because I was in a, an elite job while I was incarcerated, I did have an advantage, uh, while I was there because of the lady that I worked for at the, I had what they called the top of the line job at that time for incarceration. And that was working at the chaplain's department. And so I was in a position to help other women and solicit for resources to help other women from the outside world. And so this, you believe, is going to make a big difference. I know that it's going to make a big difference in the lives of of uh, women impacted. Did you hear women talk about wanting to see their children but not having visitation because that's one of the things that um, this law does. Uh, Children under the age of 18 can visit with their incarcerated um, mother at least twice a week. Look, this is something that, that women talked about for years, but they never saw the hope of it ever occurring. One of my dear friends and a lady that I helped who's dead and gone on now also had a child when she was in, incarcerated. That child, she had a child while she was incarcerated, gave birth and had to send the child out. I stay in touch with that child to this day. In fact, the child could not, and then her other, when this girl got out, her daughter got pregnant and we ended up I worked for an OBGYN clinic when I got out, and that doctor, Frida Bush, delivered that child um, at no cost to the lady other than the hospital bill because she could not write off the hospital bill. So this bill 
And these visitations are going to keep families together versus further separating and further traumatizing these children. And actually a friend of mine, Pamela Wynn, in Atlanta, Georgia, wrote this bill first on the federal level with Senator Cory Booker um, that helped help, uh, push this bill to federal legislation that got other states even looking at it. So I'm just thrilled, thrilled that this bill has passed and that the governor has signed it into law because it's going to keep families together. Well, Pauline Rogers, founder of the Reach Foundation, we appreciate your time in talking about uh, this new law, what it means to you, what it means to um, other incarcerated folks, and your insight on it. Thank you so much. Thank you. The new law also includes providing training for staff who work with pregnant inmates and, when possible, housing them within 250 miles of their permanent address. The Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act takes effect July 1st. Coming up, a university professor responds to recent statements by the Secretary of State regarding college students' voting proclivities and the education they receive. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. This week, a group of university professors from Jackson State, Southern Miss, and Millsaps College published an op-ed in the Clarion Ledger. In it, they pushed back against comments made by Secretary of State Michael Watson that have circulated throughout local and national media since they were made in an interview with WLOX last month. So think about all these woke college university students now who will automatically be registered to vote whether they wanted to or not, again, if they didn't know to opt out, they're going to be automatically registered to vote. And then they received this mail-in ballot uh, that they didn't even probably know was coming because they didn't know they registered to vote. you got an uninformed citizen who may not be prepared and ready to vote. Automatically, it's forced on them. Hey, go make a choice, uh, and our country's going to pay for those choices. In a supplemental conversation to our Your Vote, Your Voice series, we hear from Michael Forster, University of Southern Mississippi professor and co-author of the op-ed on the message. It, it just seemed like an appropriate thing for us to respond to since we are working with students and because we're working with students who are working with other students, that anything that sounded like you know, it was disparaging of that effort, that somehow it was a bad thing. Uh, for our democratic processes to engage more students. Uh, And probably the letter would not have developed if it hadn't been for Secretary Watson's um, decision to, you know, invoke the woke um, disparaging comment, to use that in a disparaging way. And I think that that's the word, woke. Uh, Yeah. Can you... Talk, or do you know about the background of that word, the vernacular, and how it's come to be uh, prevalent in in a lot of discussions, and why, when he said it, it was mm-hmm. disparaging. Mm-hmm. I, I won't claim to know in any detail. My understanding is that it it emerged from the African American community as 
a, a term meant to describe those who, if you will, saw behind the veil and they were able to recognize some of the systemic or structural bases of racism in the country. So it, it reflected a kind of political enlightenment on their part. Um, and then it just began to you know, spread in terms of use. How it actually became used as an epithet or a disparaging comment, I think, I don't know, but I think it probably follows the same course as the term politically correct. I mean, I can remember when being politically correct was um, considered a positive. <laughs> you were being sensitive to um, and empathic toward the concerns of those who might be disadvantaged in some way. And then over time, it began to be used by you know, critics of those concerns to, to represent um, you know, somehow a benighted state. You know, that, oh, yeah, you're politically correct. Sure, you have to say that. And kind of woke has become used in the same way. Uh, Secretary Watson said he's opposed to setting new rules for voter registration. Why do you think he used college students to make that point? I, before, I would go back to the, the concern that you're going to bring a lot of people into the, the system who, in the secretary's view, have not been sufficiently socialized to accept the status quo. I mean, that would be my way of putting it. Um, I, I don't really want to attribute uh, motive to the secretary, uh, but I do know that there is a broad-based concern. We saw it emerging after the November 2020 elections to this you know, sudden surge of reaction um, across conservative states to further limit access to voting, uh, seemingly make it more difficult to voting, to vote, you know, under the auspices of protecting the vote, that we need to ensure that we can uh, prevent fraud and so on and so forth. But the actual impact of these measures is to limit access to the vote. So the, the concern seems to be that by bringing more people into the process, the lion's share of those new people are going to oppose the status quo. They're going to oppose the um, um, the domination of the system, if you will, by those who are currently in any elite position. So it's a fear-based motive. It's a fear-driven concern on their part that we don't want to keep we, we, we don't want to allow into the system people who are not likely to support our agenda. Because the students you work with are invested and interested in the process of voting, what do you know about other students on campus? Is there a movement to get more involved in the voting process based on the last general election? I think there is. I think it's the elections and the election cycle that tends to energize the, the process. Um, it is difficult to get students. It is it's generally difficult, I think, to get citizens as a whole to be concerned uh, as much as we would like them to be about issues of great significance when there is not an election hanging. Uh, or the election approaching, right, that draws their attention. In fact, 
what would be ideal is that there is a level of uh, uh, sense of civic responsibility, civic obligation that is ongoing that would um, motivate all citizens, students, and everyone else to be attentive to significant issues as they're developing. I mean, one of the greatest threats to the democratic society is that we go to sleep in between elections and we don't pay attention to what's going on. We don't hold our elected officials accountable for what's going on. You know, we're not doing that watchdogging that we need to be doing all the time. So now students have a very good reason. Well, all citizens have have a very good reason for limiting their attention to these issues because they have other things to be concerned about, right? They have, especially students who are working their way through a program. So they're, they may not have the time to carve out to, to do that, but I don't think students are any different than citizens as a whole. I want to end with this. After um, Secretary Watson's interview, he days later did a follow-up statement And he said this, far-left liberal professors are teaching our university and college students to hate our country, which is a pretty blanket statement. I just want you to respond to that, please. Yeah, I think it's a very unfortunate statement. Um, Again, I don't know why the secretary said that. It, um, It sounds like an echo of something that President Trump said at one point uh, where he was promoting the idea of, you know, patriotic patriotic education because liberals were teaching our students to hate the country. Obviously, it's not true. What college professors, and particularly those that are uh, in one or another way involved with our political system, our policymaking system, uh, as I am in the teaching that I do, my aim is to develop critical thought in the students. Uh, That does mean you have to look at the truth. It does mean that you don't you know, whitewash things that are perhaps ugly in our history, right? So the Native American genocide, the realities of slavery, Jim Crow, the abuses of government, you know, the lies that have sometimes been told to pull the country into wars. You know, all those kinds of things are important part of the process of coming to grips with with the reality. That's not teaching students to hate. Hate comes when there's a cover-up. Right. The, the hate is going to emerge when we pretend that these things don't you know, take place. Now, if that provokes discomfort on the part of students, um, and I sometimes have students say they get very uncomfortable with some of the topics that we, we have to address when we talk about social welfare issues, which have to do with um, very significant issues of, of poverty and health care and housing and the homeless and so on and so forth, they do get uncomfortable. And I take that as a compliment. (laughs) We're teaching them how to think. Michael Forster is a professor of social work at the University of Southern Mississippi. Thank you so much for being with us, sharing your thoughts. Yeah, glad to talk with you. Coming up in our book club, a New York Times bestselling author explores what it means to be alive in life's edge. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. We all think we know what life is, but the more scientists learn, the more they're finding life harder to define. Carl Zimmer is a multi-award winning best-selling author who teaches science writing at Yale University. In his new book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, Zimmer takes readers on a journey from Mother Nature's creations to cutting-edge research in the laboratory. I'm a journalist, but I talk with lots of scientists who study this, and biologists, they all study life, but most of them really specialize just in looking at particular forms of life. So there'll be a, you know, a scientist who just studies snakes and a scientist who just studies jellyfish. But if you ask them, well, what unites the jellyfish and the snake and the redwood tree and the bacteria and us, sometimes, you know, they'll struggle as much as anybody else does to come up with a really clear explanation. Speaking of snakes, there's a quirky little piece of data in the book about boa constrictors. What's that? Yeah, so uh, in in my book, I talk about the hallmarks of life, things that uh, living things are very good at and that we kind of think of as kind of a checklist for for life. And metabolism is one of them. And that's this amazing process by which uh, a living thing can take in food, can take in molecules from the outside and turn it into fuel and be able to convert some of those molecules into its own body. We do that every time we eat. But a bow constrictor is really amazing at it because, you know, these snakes can go for weeks without eating anything at all. They're still very much alive, but then suddenly they can eat an entire deer and they just swallow it whole and they spend the next couple of days digesting it. And it turns out that they have to put in a burn up a huge amount of fuel to get the fuel out of this meal. Their metabolic rate is at the same level as a galloping racehorse, and they will keep up that rate for two or three days. So it's an extraordinary example, not just of what unites us as living things, but the incredible diversity that you get from looking from one species to another. What's the most interesting bit of information you found researching this book, talking with scientists? Uh, I was really fascinated by how close scientists are getting to making life from scratch. Uh, There are some scientists who are making advances, creating what you could call proto-cells. So these would be really, really basic cells that have just a few components that are just the bare minimum of what you need to keep something going, to keep something alive. But other scientists are just skipping the cells altogether. They're just creating droplets that contain different mixtures of basic chemicals. And they're seeing if those chemicals will interact with each other in a way that makes them do stuff that looks alive to us. You can see these droplets racing around in, in a dish like they're in a little herd. And sometimes they will split in two like they're reproducing. And they're just a mix of a handful of very simple chemicals. You know, it's possible that it will turn out that the ingredients for making life from scratch turn out not to be that complicated. 
You write, how we think about life may be about to undergo a radical change. What do you mean? I think that, you know, scientists are are on the verge of developing a, a really powerful theory of life. It's not so much important about defining life as it is to, to come up with a theory, just in the same way that we have a theory of chemistry. So we know that water isn't just something that's wet and transparent. We know that water contains molecules, and those molecules are made up of hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms. That's a much better place to be if you're trying to understand what water is. Uh, for life, you know, maybe we're going to need a theory that explains how matter takes on this strange property that we call life. And there are physicists and others who are actively working on theories that are showing a lot of promise. So I think that we may, in a generation or two, people will look back at the early 21st century and kind of look at us kind of like the alchemists before the chemical revolution. There could be some dramatic changes coming. Do you think we as humans will learn something about our own life lives by learning about other lives? I do think so, yeah, because some of our most uh, intense debates are about human life, about when human life begins and when it ends. And I think if we have a kind of a, a really clear, broad understanding of life, not just of one species' life, but life in general, I think that can help us to make sense of our own lives. Do you write this book for the average reader? I'm not a scientist. But I find the work that these scientists are doing and the ideas that philosophers are sharing to be incredibly fascinating. And I want to share that with as many people as I can. What do you hope someone will take away from reading the book? Uh, I hope that they don't take life for granted. I hope that they are able to celebrate life in a new way by recognizing that there's a deep mystery about it. Carl Zimmer is the author of Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.